Our second New Testament reading this morning begins in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And from Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, if you've been with us, you may have noticed we're pausing this morning from our study of John's Gospel. And we're doing that for, for good reason. As I, as I announced um, earlier, next week we're having a congregational meeting where we're going to begin to nominate officers in the church. And um, it's a t- pretty typical practice when you do that, especially when we're doing that for the first time. We've never done that before, is that we would pause and we would look at Scripture and we would think again about what it means to be a leader in the church. What does that look like? And so this morning, I'm, um, we, we're taking the, the passages that Hannah read, but also considering the passages that, that Will read earlier, and we're asking that question. And really, what does is, what is Christian leadership actually look like? What, is, it, is it synonymous with what leadership in the world looks like? And so we're going to ask that big, kind of big picture question, and then we'll look a little bit about the office of elder and deacon, and I'm going to leave probably a lot of questions maybe unanswered if you're, this is the first time you're thinking about those things. Um, what I will say is that you're free to ask me any questions about that during the course of the week, 
I would love to be able to talk to you about it. Um, I would also just remind you that these aren't things that we dream up, that we, we're a church that believes that Scripture really is our only rule of faith and practice, that it really is God's Word, and um, we want to be faithful to it um, as much as we humanly can be, and we want it to guide us in how we form and shape this church. So let me pray, and then we'll talk about this for a minute. Father, I pray that you would give this church um, unity, that unity would, would come through the truth. Um, I pray that you would continue to bind us together even more closely, that um, we would really feel as if we're in the midst of family because we all have one elder brother, Jesus. Um, I pray that you would deepen that and you would strengthen that even the course of this, these next few weeks and next year. Um, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us patience with one another, that you would keep us from um, gossip or from bitterness or from backbiting, that you would guard us from the things that um, even in the early church we saw were warned against because they're so pronounced and there's nothing new under the sun. Those things still exist in our day. So guard us from that, Father, so that we might be a place that glorifies you, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Let's go start with a really simple question. What do you think of when you think of a leader? What what kind of images come into your mind when you think of a leader? And it might feel like sort of a hard time to ask that question. Um, You might kind of look at, when you think of that question, you might look at some of the highest positions of authority. And you might think, well... People who rise to the highest positions of authority or high positions of authority um, must be the ones who are the best leaders. They must be the ones who show us what leadership looks like. That's not always the case. Um, Certainly in the church, it's never been the case that what the church does is looks at worldly leadership and just says we should imitate um, the leadership that we see in the world, that we should see how leadership works in the world, and we should do our best to implement its practices, um, that we should be on the forefront of mimicking what leadership in the world does. But it's never been the case that it's prudent or good for the church to imitate the leadership in the world. It's never been the case that that's been true. Why? Because Scripture teaches that the heart is deceitful above all things, and the heart is full of sin, and at the heart of sin is a desire for power that serves self. And one of the places that it's easiest to try and quench that lust for power that is ultimately serving self is in positions of authority. And so Jesus, I mean, we've watched him do this. It's no mistake, I think, that we've been in John Uh, For the last year, really, and even in these last few weeks, we've been in John's gospel as Jesus sits in this upper room with his disciples, and he's training his disciples what it looks like for them to now go into the world and to build his church. And Jesus is talking intimately to them, and and I think that these are really, we could consider them, this is Jesus' officer training. And what we find is that Jesus was continually battling against the same 
concepts of leadership that we see in our own day. That there's, there isn't anything new under the sun. That the same things have always existed. That there's always been people um, who seek out power for their own reasons and for their own self-importance to continue their own agenda. And so Jesus was continually saying to his disciples, but it shall not be so among you. It shouldn't be the case among you. Leadership in Jesus's church, this is not a um, profound statement I'm making. Leadership in Jesus's church is supposed to look like Jesus. And so I wonder when I ask that question, what do you think of when you think of a leader? What comes to your mind? What, what, what comes up? What picture comes in your mind when you think of a leader? And I wonder how many of us in here, the first thing that we thought of, don't be proud of yourself if you did, but if the first thing you thought of was Jesus. And it would be understandable if Jesus was not the first image that popped into your mind when I said, what do you think of when you think of a leader? Because everything about Jesus and the way that he led was directly antithetical to the leadership that we mostly see in the world today. And Jesus' disciples, having been observers of the world, trained in the ways of the world, products of their culture, had to learn this new idea from Jesus the hard way. That he was, he was continually beating this notion into their heads. And when his disciples were tagging along with Jesus as they made their way to Jerusalem, and you remember Jerusalem is the seat of authority and the seat of power for them. This was an important place. And as they're going with Jesus to Jerusalem, over and over again in the Gospels, what do we find the disciples doing as they're going with Jesus to Jerusalem? They're arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Which one of us is the greatest? I mean, we're going to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the place of, of, of power, it's the place of importance, and we're with Jesus, who might be the Messiah, he might be the king, and we're with him. So which one of us has the most ability? Which one of us has the most charisma? Which one of us has the most rhetorical flair? I don't know what they were arguing about or what their measure of greatness was, but they, they were having an argument amongst themselves that were comparing themselves to worldly notions of leadership and power and greatness on the way to Jerusalem, walking behind Jesus, and Jesus pulls them aside once again, and he he basically gently says to them, you don't get it. You don't really understand who I am, what I'm going to do, and then what I'm asking you to do. And so Jesus says to him these words that Will read to us earlier. They're worth reading again. You know that those who are considered that the worldly leaders, the, the, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever, just think about these words again. You may have heard them hundreds of times before. Think about them again. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must become slave of all. That is paradigm shifting. That's taking all their notions of what it means to be great and just putting them on their head. And the question arises, why would we do that? And Jesus answers that question. He says, for even the Son of Man, even I, came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Yes, I'm redefining the whole thing because what does leadership look like for Jesus? What, is, how, what kind of leader is Jesus? Jesus is the leader who has all authority, all power on he, in heaven and on earth at his fingertips at all times. And he stoops to use that power in submissiveness to his father to come near to the weakest, the lowest, and the vilest of all people. Who am I describing? I'm describing you and me. That he takes all of that power and he harnesses it and he empties himself and he comes down. He takes on the form of a servant. He humbles himself and he moves towards the weakest and the vilest and the lowest people. And of course that sounded as crazy then as it sounds now. Jesus' leadership moved downward. It didn't move upward. It was, a, it, was a, it was a leadership of downward mobility, not upward mobility. And in the Gospels, this type of restrained power and submission to the Father is over and over again described, Jesus is described as being meek. It's not a word we use very often anymore. When you think of like, when I said, what do you think of when you think of a leader? Probably the first thing that came into your mind is like, I imagine somebody who's very meek. Meek sounds like weak. And we think it's the same thing. Jesus is described often as being meek. What does meek look like? I love the way that the poet Mary Carr describes meekness. Just listen to this imagery. She says, to understand the meek, picture a great stallion at full gallop in a meadow who at his master's voice seizes to a stunned but instant halt. So with the strain of holding that great power in check, the muscles along the arched neck keep eddying, and only the velvet ears prick forward, awaiting the next order. That's what meekness looks like. And you think about those who follow Jesus, the leaders who follow Jesus, um, and their course work with Jesus and them coming to understand this. Think about the power-hungry Saul. And how, how Saul was transformed as he encountered Jesus into Paul, who then described himself as the chief of sinners. I mean, think about that. The one who wrote a, the bulk of the New Testament, the way that he described himself was the chief of sinners. And before, he was somebody who had taken um, all of he, he'd put all of his stock and all of his identity in his religious education the position that he had in the church, that he had taken cues and paths of worldly power. But when he met Jesus, he said, you know what I am? I'm a bondservant of Jesus. And it's incredible. I'm the chief of sinners. And when he writes to the early church, 
Paul, think about Corinth for a minute. You might not know much about Corinth. Corinth looked a lot like things that we would recognize in our own society. Corinth was all about power. Corinth was all about prestige. Corinth was very worldly. And they valued a lot of the same things that we value in American culture. And so the church quickly began, there was more Corinth in the church than there was Christ in the church And the way that that manifested itself is that the people started following certain leaders who they liked better. And even ones would be bragging about they were baptized by a certain pastor or certain apostle. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. And so Paul writes to them and says to them, these are the words that we heard earlier. I'm going to read them again. Just listen to these. He's saying to them, it's just what Jesus said, this is not going to be the case among us. He says, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Who are you then? God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord and nothing else. So if Jesus humbled himself, if Jesus became a servant, if Jesus, think about it, hung out with the people that nobody would have expected a leader of his significance and importance to hang out with. Jesus hung out with drunkards, and he hung out with prostitutes, and he came near to lepers, and he was close to those who were grieving, and he was close to those who were hurting. And then he takes a death march to a cross where he knew that he was going to be executed, but then Jesus overcomes death and he establishes a kingdom in his name that is upside down from what everyone would have previously understood. It only makes sense that leadership in the church will look wildly different than leadership in the world. And if it doesn't, there's a problem. If it doesn't, It may be like Corinth, that there's a little bit more Corinth in the church than there is Christ. Is there a little more Greenville in the church than there is Jesus? I'm taking time to pound this into our heads this morning because like those disciples that are tagging along behind Jesus, um, what I've found in my own life is that we have been doggedly conditioned to think of leadership not according to biblical standards, but we've been trained to think of leadership according to worldly standards, and then we dress it up with religious things. But it shall not be so among us. And so in the next few weeks, as we kind of think about nominating leaders in our own church, I'm pausing and I'm thinking about what, it, what, what does biblical leadership actually look about. And it should unnerve us, I think, and it should unsettle us, and it should wake us up to just how conformed our notions of leadership are to the world rather than to the Bible and to Jesus. But I also hope that it excites us. 
Because when you think about the things that I just talked about, it should excite you to think that this is the nature and the character of the God that you worship, and there is no other God like him. He is a God who comes down and meets you. He is a God who moves towards the weak things in the world. He is a God who loves the lost and the hurting and the poor because he became poor so that we might become rich. And I, and I want that to ignite our sense of wonder as we think about maybe even the thought this morning, how did I even end up sitting here? Because Jesus was a different kind of leader. Because none of us have business sitting here on our own. That Jesus has moved close to us. And as we think about that, as we think of moving forward as a church along this path that Jesus has carved out for us, this path of downward mobility, that we would rejoice all the way that we are in Christ. And in Christ, we do have the hope of glory. So we break free of every other thing that entangles us. Because we are in Christ. And that is it. And that's all we have to boast in. So what do you do when you think about, okay, um, this structure that we do have leadership in the church though, right? And the New Testament is very clear about this. The New Testament sets this up, and um, I could preach for weeks on this about what that looked like. I'm not going to do that this morning to you. But I want us to think about, when you think about nominating people who will lead in this church, What type of things, then, should you think about when you're looking for leaders? And I want to talk about that in general just for another minute, and then I want to look specifically at these two offices that the New Testament lays out. And so what do we look for? I've got got six things. Sorry. Um, They're short, though. Six things. If I I, I thought about seven because that's a perfect biblical number, but I'm being nice to you, and we're only going to have six this morning. The first one is this, if you, and if you hear nothing else, hear this. This is Christianity 101, and yet when we start to think about nominating people, we might forget that this is the most important thing, that a Christian leader should have a deep love of Jesus. That they have a deep love of Jesus. That maybe goes without saying, but when you think of someone to lead or to shepherd or to serve or to represent you in the church... I want you to think about somebody who has a deep love of Jesus because they know how deeply they have been loved by Jesus and it knocks them off their feet. How in the world could Jesus love me like this? I know myself too well. That they are able to say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners and yet I am deeply loved. And that love is the love. If you want to look at what built the New Testament church, if you want to look at what propelled the apostles forward into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, if you want to look at what caused many to go and die as martyrs, it was the fact that they were overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. There is no other explanation. We think about people, not who are the brightest, not who are the smartest, not who are the most polished, the people who are deeply in love with Jesus because they understand that Jesus is deeply in love with them, and it is incredible. A Christian leader, secondly, understands, is somebody who understands their own weakness and is ready and quick to repent. 
that they understand their own weakness. If somebody understands the depth of Jesus' love for them, it, it will necessarily mean that they have a strong sense of their own frailty and their own weakness, that this is why Jesus has found them and loved them and made them whole. It's not because they were somehow worthy of his love. And so they're, they're, they're in touch with their weakness, maybe even more than they are with their strength. Because as we've heard, Jesus likes to work even through and mainly through our weakness and our frailty. So they're in touch with their weakness and they're quick to, to admit that they're wrong. Because what they know is that they're wrong a lot. What they know is that they mess up a lot. And they love to lead people to repentance, the place where there is life. It's not, there's no life in, in, in being right all the time. There is life in Jesus. And they know that, and they lead people toward it. A Christian leader, thirdly, has humility that bears the fruit of the Spirit. That humility in their life is a conduit through which the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you want to, like, look at somebody and think, are these people, is the Spirit of Christ alive in this person? What do you look for? Think about it just for a second. What do you look for? This is where the Bible would direct us, is that you look for love and joy and and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Why? Because those are a picture of Jesus. This is what Jesus looks like. And if the spirit of Jesus is alive in us, it's not perfect, but these things are beginning to grow. They're beginning to blossom. They're beginning to, to bear fruit in our life. And this fruit is a picture of the nature and character of Jesus himself. Only Jesus can produce those things. Fourthly, a Christian leader should have a love for the lost and a love for the hurting and suffering and a love for the poor. And, you know, if you, if you want to look for leaders, you want to look for leaders who who maybe wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and ache and mourn over the brokenness of the world. You want to look for leaders who look at suffering and look at those who are apart from Christ and look for those who are stuck in in systems of oppression and they mourn over it and they ache over it and they say, how much longer, Jesus, how do we serve them? Jesus, why, how can I say that? Because this is who Jesus was. Jesus was always moving towards those who were lost and those who were suffering and those who were hurting and those who were poor. And if you think there is a leader in the church and yet they neglect those groups, they're not a leader. They're not a leader. They're pl- because it's plainly not following after Jesus. Fifthly, A Christian leader embraces sacrifice. Jesus himself says, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you will find it. And so we nominate people that not only give lip service to this, but embrace this because this is their hope. Service is not some sort of drudgery by which a leader earns your regard and your favor. 
Service and sacrifice is the way of Jesus, and it actually is a way of life. Why? Because a leader knows, a Christian leader knows, my treasure is in heaven. That I have an inheritance, that it's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, and it's sitting in Jesus' lap reserved for me in heaven. And so I'm able to give, right? A leader is able to give their life and embraces that. This is exactly what Jesus said. But lastly, a Christian leader is not seduced by power, by false ambition, by money, or by what we would call the American dream. You know, it's, it's easy to look spiritual and religious on the outside, to look successful and put together, to be praised for it, to be lifted to a position of authority. It's easy in our culture to be outwardly moral. It's, there's just a few boxes we really have to check to be outwardly moral and yet have a life that is consumed with consumption, consumed with materialism, consumed with climbing a ladder of success and a ladder of the praise of men. And at the end of the day, all these things look beautiful on the outside, but there is a heart that is seeking something else and bowing down to something else. And I would just simply say, do not be fooled by that as you think about leadership. Do not be fooled by it. So what about, those are six general things. What about specifically with elders and deacons? And again, I'm not going through um, a breakdown of why we will have elders and deacons. I can talk to you more about that in a separate place. Um, But we're really just admitting the fact that this is the practice both of our church and what we find to be the practice of Scripture, that there's elders and deacons. And so what is an elder? An elder in this passage uh, that Hannah read to us is somebody who's also called an overseer. And I think that that's a a helpful term. If this is completely new to you, think about it, think about that word, that this is somebody who's an overseer. So elders in the church are called and they're ordained by God to oversee and shepherd the congregation. And they exist, what, what do they do? They exist to pray for you, to love you, to know you, to listen to you, to correct you when needed, and to point you to Jesus. Because what elders should want more than anything is that you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. An elder is not pointing to themselves. An elder is pointing to Jesus in any way that they can point you to Jesus is what they should be trying to do. Look not at me. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And so... The elders also represent you in certain cases. They make decisions on behalf of the church oftentimes that we're not able to make as a whole. And so it's a group. There's there's several elders who guide the mission of the church and try to conform it to Scripture and conform it to the Bible. And so Paul calls this, he says, this is a noble task. It's not noble in the sense that these people are better than you. It's noble in the sense that it's weighty. That this is it's not something to be taken lightly. It's something that will, will keep you up at night. And this is why the description that he gives for the officer of elder, the office of elder can, can feel like a little daunting. I mean, even as you heard it read, it's like, ugh. Um, but keep this in mind. This, this isn't a description of someone who's just sort of naturally good. This isn't a description of somebody who's just sort of figured it out. This is, somebody, this is a picture of somebody who is in deep submission to Jesus. 
This is somebody who that general qualification that I says has a deep love for Jesus. This is Paul is giving an outflowing of what that looks like. So all things that Paul lists here are really aspects of the fruit of spirit that are alive in him. Some of, some of the specifics maybe that we didn't cover to consider are things that he brings out that may be surprising that an elder should be hospitable. And that shouldn't be a word that's like new to the Grace and Peace family because we talk about welcome and we talk about hospitality a lot. That an elder is somebody who knows that they have been welcomed by Jesus and so the way that they welcome those in the congregation to listen to them, I mean to to come and sit with them, to listen, to pray with them. Um, That it should be somebody, what does it mean to be hospitable as a person? It means you're approachable. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're a raging extrovert. You can be an introverted, hospitable person. It doesn't mean that you have a huge personality. Um, But it means that you want people to feel as if you are ready and willing to listen, to pray, to know them. Another thing that Paul, you know, I can't go through all of these, but another thing that I think that he points out that's specific to the office of elder is that they're able to teach. And again, that doesn't mean that it's somebody who's like a master of rhetoric. It, it just means that they're able to teach Scripture and the doctrines of our religion, that they understand them and they're able to clearly communicate them so that they can be understood, that they're able to teach. He says that they should not be a lover of money. That it doesn't mean they take a vow of poverty. It doesn't mean that they have to be poor, but it means that it's clear to you that that's not where their hope is found. It's not where their identity is found. It says that they're a husband of one wife. And I think that that could mean a lot of things, but I think one of the things that Paul's getting at is that there's somebody who has pursued faithfulness and sexual purity. They're not perfect, but they are pursuing that they are faithful to one wife. What about deacons? How are deacons different? Paul doesn't explain it necessarily in this passage, so let me bring in a few other things. The office of elder is one of spiritually shepherding the congregation, and the office of deacon is one of of sympathy and service. And so in Acts 6, if you go back and read Acts 6, you have elders whose main objective was to teach and to pray and to shepherd And they were not able to do that to the best of their ability because there were so many needs in the congregation that they began having to actually wait tables. They were serving people food. Um, They were taking care of people's physical needs, which is a beautiful and good thing. Um, So they installed deacons. They said, choose seven men among yourself and, and let them do this work so that you would be free, so the elders would be free to do specifically what they were called to do. I like, I'm going to read something to you. Um, This is a description that I think is really good of what a deacon is. And I want it to stick in your head if you think about, um, this is from actually our book of church order and our denomination. Not something I read from the pulpit very often. But listen to this. It says, the, the duty of deacons is to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, to the friendless. To any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. I love that. To devise effective methods for collecting the gifts of the people and to distribute these among the objects to which they were contributed. 
They shall have the care of the property of the congregation, both real and personal. They shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings and so on and so forth. That you get the idea that they are, uh, that, that deacons are ones who are serving the physical needs of the congregation, but there's a spirit, there is a very true spiritual element to it because what they're doing is teaching us what it looks like to be more liberal with our money, what it looks like to be more giving, to be more outward-facing, to be more Jesus-like in the way that we move towards people. I said at the beginning there is much more that I could say about this, and I want to fill in any questions that you have during the course of the upcoming weeks. And so um, this goes for anything in the church, but don't be afraid, please, to reach out um, to me with any questions that you have. Um, But I want to encourage you over this next week to pray. I want you to, if you're able, um, to fast and to seek God's face, that he would give us godly leaders who are conformed and who are being conformed to the image of Jesus so that we might even look and grow more in conformity to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the head of the church and that this church belongs to him. And I pray that you would help us to know what it means to walk in submission to Jesus, even as Jesus walked in submission to the Father. I pray that you would give us humility. Um, Father, I pray that these things that I described this morning, um, that they would be things that we're all seeking after as we seek to conform our lives to Jesus. Um, Father, I pray that you would um, be with us in the coming weeks, that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us direction and that you would give us unity in this process. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.